source for stateside views on Everton Football Club. Hosted by Alex Johnson, James Boyman, and Ryan Williams. Welcome back to the American Toffee Podcast. This is Alex, joined by Ryan, coming to you immediately after a disappointing defeat at St. Mary's against Southampton. Um, A fun fact for you, Southampton have lost just once at home in the PL this season and are unbeaten in the last eight at St. Mary's. Three wins, five draws since a 1-0 loss against Wolves in September. That September benchmark has been an important benchmark for Everton, just uh, in a quite opposite manner. That was the last time we had any semblance of (laughs) ability. Yeah, we've been bad since September, basically. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah, yeah. So I thought that was funny. But nonetheless, before we hop into our instant reactions, please make sure to check out linktr.ee slash usatoffeepod for all of our social links, Discord links, etc., that is linktr.ee slash USA Toffee Pod. Also, if you want to dis- uh, join our Discord community, which is always popping, tons of cool uh, people there, lots of interesting conversation. That is invite.gg slash ATP. All those links are in the description, so please check it out. If you haven't already, come join us and have a laugh. So, Ryan, let's get into the instant reaction after a spanking at St. Mary's. How are you feeling? Uh, there's no awful noise or sound I could made to replicate what I thought of that performance. It's just from about the 20th minute on, it was an absolute disaster, even though we started out pretty well. I think the start was good. You know, I, I thought I had some questions of the setup. We'll get into that. But I, I don't know what you thought. It had to be kind of exciting to see us playing on the front foot. And then it just all went to pieces, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, like most fans, I think I was really excited to see Everton play. I was telling um, my fiance that last night and we haven't been able to say that for a while. So that was a nice change of pace. Get excited, get up on Saturday morning. Um, But unfortunately, it ended up being the wrong setup. You know, I have some quarrels with the subs. Um, You know, I all of that to say the execution from the players wasn't good either. So overall, it was a really disappointing display. And it does kind of remind us how big of an uphill battle we have moving forward. Yeah, a little bit of both for sure today. You know, not too many good performances all around, and the setup was definitely questionable. Basically the same one as last time. Shockingly enough, nobody got the score prediction. Yep. You know, you hate it when you're an optimistic Evertonian because that's where we get get uh, hurt. But nonetheless, so Ryan, <clears throat> we know prior to this match when Frank was in charge of Chelsea, he actually played against Ralph Hassenhudel's Southampton side three times. So kind of start walking us through how that looked, you know, the setups between the two and maybe how that affected or or could have foreshadowed how Everton ended up playing against Southampton today or setting up specifically. I think it's important because Ralph's teams at Southampton have been very predictable. Um, They're normally 4-4-2 and they play a particular way. We'll get to that in a second. Um, Very interestingly enough, though, the first match Frank had against Ralph was in October 2019. Ralph played 4-3-3. So go figure, right? And um, Chelsea beat them four to one, but they were fairly fortunate, I think, to do that. And I think what's interesting is just looking at how Frank set up. It was a four three three with Jorginho behind Conte and Mason Mount. That's that's a nice trio, right? I mean, it'd be nice to have some quality like that, but we don't, and that's life. The second match, Southampton beat Chelsea two nil, and that was in December, not too much farther after it. But it's very interesting because Ralph went back to his typical four four two, and Frank started out with a. 3-4-3 with Jorginho and Conti in the middle, changed to 4-2-3-1 at half. You would have thought this would have 
maybe got him to learn a little bit. I think that's what I had in my notes, right, Alex, your, your comment? Yeah, and, and I think that's kind of funny because obviously um, we saw Southampton uh, pretty much in like a 4-4-2 today. Um, naturally, we saw Frank when he first took over Everton. He started out in a 3-4-3. And then naturally today, as we move forward during the match, and, and we'll kind of get into it, but we ended up switching to a 4-2-3-1, uh, losing. And the ironic thing is obviously the scoreline ended up being the same. Southampton 2, Frank's team nil. Yeah, and it really happened way too late at this point. It's not like we changed at half. And it, it just, yeah, you would have hoped that he would have been better better equipped to deal with it. Um, the third match was a 3-3 draw, which frankly was was unlucky to Frank. God, I got to stop doing that, right? Frankly, Frank. But uh 3-3 draw, <laughs> but I mean, really, you know, it was Mount, Havertz, and Pulisic kind of playing in front in a 4-2-3-1 in front of Jorginho and Conte. They went up early to nil. Um and, you know, they Southampton scored in the exact way they always score, that immediately Red Bull style pass directly to split the D, and they didn't seem prepared to do with it. And after that, they had two fairly fortunate goals, one in extra time. The point is that Southampton give up goals at a minimum. I mean, Southampton are without a clean sheet in 13 Premier League games. That's the longest current run of the competition. So now, granted, they're scoring a lot, too. So that's what I kind of thought we were going to get into Lots of goals, lots of havoc, kind of some craziness. That was not really the case. Um, but Southampton, of course, came back with the lineup. They've been playing 4-2-4-2 like they always do um, with a very similar lineup to last week with the only changes. Livermento was was shown as a left back initially, but he's typically a right back. And Walker Peters is a good, adaptable player. So he I moved over to left most of the match. But look, we've seen them play before. We know what to expect. Jared Ward-Prowse and, and Romeo are going to sit in the middle. They're going to be really compact. They're going to be hard to play through. Um, and Armstrong will play on the right side, but he plays like a third midfielder. And he's a really good defensive player. And you've got Benderek and, and Salasu in the back. And they're big bodies. They're strong, tough. Salasu is an absolute animal. Um, and you know, they're basically saying, play down the middle to us, please. Just play right down the middle. We're going to eat it up immediately and bang, counter you right into the middle. I mean, that's the whole Red Bull philosophy. The second you win the ball, the first thing you do is get it as fast towards goal as you possibly can. And when not, fine. Then they'll pick a side and they'll attack from it. And and we saw that today. I mean, did anything they do seem like a surprise to you, Alex? No, no, not at all. I mean, it, it was pretty typical Southampton. And that's that's how you, you have to set up to play to your strengths, which, you know, arguably maybe we did not today. Obviously, there's always an asterisk there because it also depends on how your opposition sets up as well. So, you know, Everton's lineup now, and we're going to talk about this, but Everton's lineup went unchanged after the 3-0 win against Leeds last week. And so that sees John Joe uh, Cruyff-Kenny start at left back again, right? Gordon on the left as well. Um, you know, a front two of Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison, which, you know, always feels formidable at the least, something that we probably would have hoped we had for the entirety of the season, but um, naturally, I think we can all we all know that Frank tempered expectations for Dominic Calvert-Lewin and his fitness levels ahead of this match specifically. Um, so, Ryan, I have a question for you. Really, you know, is the same team? Do you agree with the fact that we walked out with the same team uh, against Southampton that we did at Leeds? And and that's and I, and I'm saying that outside of uh, formation, just specifically the personnel. I understand why one might do it. I don't believe in that old saying that you don't change a winning team. I, I don't think that makes any sense whatsoever, unless you feel like it's about your best team anyway. I think you play your best team, but you play your best team relative to the circumstance. Surely our best team is not John Joe Kenny at left back, for example. He's playing out of position. No no offense to John Joe. He played great last week. No, I don't. Uh, Personnel-wise, 
it's hard to make a strong argument that that's not okay in terms of the people that we played, I think. But no, I don't think 4-4-2 this way would work, but I can't argue that we didn't go out to a good start. I, I think the problem is the, the two in midfield again. And if you're going to dominate the ball and you're going to sit on it all the time, I think maybe you can get away with Van de Beek in there. Uh, conversely, what's your alternative? You know, we don't have any defensive mids. And I, I don't, a couple things do irk me a little bit. I mean, Alex, curious your take on this. Do you think it's a problem, the fact that we are paying someone 100K a week our big signing on the winter break. We're in a relegation battle and we're resigning Deli Ali to the bench. I mean, doesn't that seem like maybe not the best use of, of resources? I mean, can't we figure out a way to get, if we can't play both him and Van de Beek in at the same time. And, and I actually don't think we should, we may be right now because we have a lot of people injured. I don't think Donnie's best position is as a defensive mid, but that's neither here nor there. One of them should play. Isn't it kind of an indictment of our business if we can't get both those guys on the pitch at the same time? I, I'm curious your thoughts, and maybe we probably should have today anyway. Yeah, I mean, look, I I was all all for seeing Deli Ali. I mean, you would think, okay, last couple weeks, not a huge deal. Frank mentioned his mat, match fitness hasn't necessarily been there because he wasn't really playing for Spurs this season. Okay, fair enough. Today is definitely a day I think we should have seen more than 15 minutes of Deli Ali on the pitch for us, especially after some of the performances individual performances um, up top and out wide specifically. Um, I think that, you know, Deli Ali could have helped. The introduction of Deli Ali could have helped in terms of our shape. We could have had a little bit more of an option, obviously, because he came on and we played a 4-2-3-1 immediately when he came on. So, yep. you know, yep. right there, that 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 begs the question, why, why didn't we just play a 4-2-3-1, I mean, a 4-2-3-1 to begin with, and he would have been in there. And, and you know, right? It, it doesn't make sense I think for Charles on the left, et cetera. I think that's a great point. And if you look, we went through his past history. Look at when he had success. He had success in a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1. I mean, he literally switched to that when things were going wrong in the 3-4-3. So I was hoping he might do that at halftime. I think we'll talk about that sub in a second. The point is, I know you don't want to change the lineup and you were happy with how they played last time, but I also thought it required so much effort on Gordon and Awobi to come back and play defensively. I also think very much tactically, Giving the, each of them freedom to kind of cut inside is really lovely. But if you're going to play Gordon on the left, cutting inside, and you're going to play a Wobie who likes to play more in the half space, I don't think that's playing into how you want to play with Southampton. So I would have hoped that Frank would have maybe at least deconstructed the 4-4-2 in a different way. I'm fine actually attacking the 4-4-2. Um, but I, I just, you're not going to be able to possess the ball as well. And another thing too, if you're going to play long balls and hoof it up to, the, to Dominic Calvert-Lewin and even Richarlison, you play four four two. You can't ask those two midfielders to get up there and win second balls. So I just think it's a bad idea all around. I think a four two three one would have been much better. I would like to see Ali Deli Ali coming in and playing with Van de Beek. I mean, why get the guy of that kind of quality if you're not going to put him in? I'm sure he didn't want to take either Gordon or Wobi out because they were so good last week. But it's easier to pick in, at that after the fact. One question I have for you, which is fascinating: JP Bamin does not make the bench again. You look at that bench and you think. Like if Alon goes down or Donnie goes down, who do we have to put in there as a defensive mid? I mean, Andre Gomes is really the only kind of defensive mid. I would never play him in a two anyway, and certainly not as a defensive mid in a 4-2-3-1 unless you're going to have the ball the whole match. Rumors are he might be off to Moscow 
as a loan somewhere. I mean, certainly the owner or the involvement at Moscow from one Usmanov may have something to do with that because we don't have a director of football right now. So I don't know what longer term strategy that's achieving. So if he's not fit or not ready to play, that's one thing. But dear heavens, could he not, or at least someone that's a true defensive-oriented player in midfield, not have been helpful today? Uh, Halsey Nim has a really good comment here. I tend to agree with them. I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, Halsey Nim at NimAlin316 said, Nobody can tell me that Bamin would have fared worse than the personnel we had in central midfield today. Too much trying to play in center. Fullbacks needed to create space on the overlap. And I think that, that hits the nail on the head, too. And And unfortunately, you know, Part of that is you mentioned maybe we didn't want John Joe Kenny playing at left back. Mikalinko did make the bench, but you know, we do know there's an asterisk, you know, beside that inclusion because he wasn't involved last time due to, you know, rumors of um in uh, in an uncertain COVID test. So I guess we don't necessarily know what if he got COVID or mean? not. We're not sure. But Let's take we... it take it a test if you don't know. <laughs> so if we give him the benefit of the doubt, okay, maybe not. And you know, we've talked about Mikalinko maybe not being the uh the most, uh, the best at, at attacking in general, but nonetheless, it, easily it, it ended up being a problem. I think, uh, Bamin to Moscow at this point, just get the guys some play time. Literally. Yeah. He, he obviously is not going to play at Everton at this point, at this current point in time. So please go enjoy football somewhere and see if you can raise your stock a little bit so that we have some, some ability to, you know, gain some on FFP moving forward. Well, that's the point. I mean, you know, loans can take many forms. One is just simply get someone fit. One is to show them off so that you can sell them. The other one is to try and find a loan in a place where you can come back into the first team. And his is a little strange because he's older. But yeah, so look, let's let's go to kind of the tactical setup. And we're staring at the average player positions as we do every week. And it's pretty fascinating. Um, Andy Watt at Waddy Watt Dog. It just makes me laugh kind of every time I read it. Uh, Andy's pretty savvy in terms of how teams play and tactically astute. So let me read what he wrote because I think it's good. Leads are a completely different animal to Southampton. Need to swamp the midfield and overload the right while guarding the left. Left center mid can eventually essentially mark Armstrong and allow a straight battle between the others. And conversely, Armstrong will play the other way against you as well. Um, and it was interesting. I felt like Part of what was successful last week is our ability to press and do it with some some coherence. And the back line coming up, I think, was valuable. And you know they're going to hit you direct very quickly. But I don't think it helps when you back off as much and allow them and don't draw them outside or or allow them to run and try and split the center halves um, because you're deeper and you give them that run. I mean, you don't want to be played over the top and everything, but Pickford just has to adjust to that. It just didn't seem like the overall setup was designed to pressure. And there was some pressure that was effective early, but it really went away very, very quickly. And you can kind of see how Southampton were attacking. They were attacking down the left side. Um, they went right at Coleman and Holgate the whole time with, uh, you know, Walker and, uh, Kyle Walker, Kyle Walker, Peters and, uh, you know, Broha kind of slid over there too. And Broha's a really good player, by the way. He's big, strong, fast. He's effective. He was constantly dangerous throughout the match. And I mean, basically Coleman and Holgate were under siege. We'll get to their numbers in the past. But what I find very interesting is looking at the attacking sides, Alex. I mean, that is pretty one-sided on both sides, but the difference in quality was very apparent today. 
Yeah, it was. As you mentioned it, I mean, 50% Southampton attack on their left side. So as you said, straight at Coleman, straight at Holgate. And Col- Holgate ended up being one of the more active defenders. So that that checks out as well. And Van de Beek, Everton, too. I mean, that's Van de Beek's side as yeah. well, too. I mean, that's worth noting. I mean, he's not, not really a natural defensive defensive midfielder you know he's fine with the ball but he gets out of sorts and and I think they actually switched over at one point as well too so there was probably some exchange but one out of those two is going to be drawn over you know what I mean either way and then Everton seemed like we countered from the left side 46 percent of our attack came down the left 33 down the right so it's good that we were kind of vacating the middle but it seemed like once we got it over there it failed because we were trying to push the ball into the middle and let's be honest our quality on our left side versus the quality they had on their left side in attack, night and day today for sure. It was. I mean, look, we're talking on our left side, John Joe Kenny at left back and Anthony Gordon, a guy that we did not even dream six months ago would have near this many minutes or should have, right? Or even maybe this it, season. We we were we were talking about maybe he could have gone on loan. So it, it's kind of easy to get carried away with Gordon's like recent performances. But at the same time, though, it's also fair to say that they're not going to be 100% consistent all the time, especially at the level that he's been able to find recently. Yeah, and I think forcing the ball to him and expecting him to carry a team almost is not. And look, if it just played out that way and we were going for balance and that w- was what was open. And look, I'm not going to lie to you. I would probably rather go at Livermento instead of Walker Peters on that side. I get that. Um, but either way, the quality wasn't there in our attack when we did attack down the side. And look, look at where the shots are from, Alex. I mean, that is, so we're looking at the graphic that shows the the percentage of shots outside and inside the box, inside the sixth. I mean, look at that. That is a dramatic, I mean, that's, that's the story of the game right there in terms of the ability of the level of quality chances created on either side. I mean, they outshot us dramatically, but it wasn't because they were shooting from distance, was it? No, not at all. I mean, so Southampton, 21% in the six-yard box, 58% in the 18, right? Whereas Everton, 0% in the six-yard box, 22% in the 18. So that leaves us at 78% of the shots outside of the box, which is horrific to say the least, right? And as you said, yeah. I mean, we we were not completing we were not completing crosses. Our final our final product was lacking. Needless to say, it ended up being the wrong setup. We created virtually nothing, and unfortunately, it it really showed. So we didn't put this in the doc, so I, this is an instant reaction for Alex. Do you see Oof. the XG battle that I just put in? I, so InfoGoal yeah, has it at 2.79 for Southampton, Everton, 0.3. That's probably the biggest tail kicking we've had in terms of that disparity in, I mean, in a long time. I mean, that is an absolute just schlacking 7.2.79 versus 0.3. I mean, that is, is, did you think it would be that high? No, you know, when I, when I see an XG like that, I, I start thinking about that Richarlison quote I saw maybe uh, yesterday in which he talked about, you know, I want to be at Everton playing champions league. I don't want to go to another club. I think that we can achieve our ambitions here. And then I realized that we just played Southampton and we had a 0.3 XG away from home. That's, I'm not a team sure. that has I'm not sure. hasn't had a they have the longest non shutout streak in the Premier League until they played Everton. Of course, that's great. Yeah, I mean, look, we went away from what what served us well and what I think Frank's identity is supposed to be today. No question. So let's get in the timeline. It's pretty funny. So you take snippets of the timeline, you kind of put it in the doc. We do actually do preparation for the show. Hopefully that's obvious. Maybe it's not. I hope it is. <laughs> um, but this one, the timeline in of itself is the most boring timeline I've ever seen. It's literally two yellow cards. 
that is it. Normally there's something else that has happened, but look, the start was great. I mean, there was all sorts of good moments in there. Uh, Gordon had a play where he got around the edge and took a terrible dive and then took a corner and it was terrible. But the point is there was some chances there. We looked dangerous. And then there was the controversial decision. Is that a handball or not on the Romeo deflection off his arm in the box? It looked like it was a hard driven cross at maybe around shoulder height. Alex, you're Andy Madley, the fantastic official who was so good today. Not at all. Um, is that a handball or not? I mean, look, I think the argument has to be, was his hand by his side or not? If you watch it pretty closely, you see that as the ball's coming, he does extend his arm outside of his body. And then it looks like at the very last minute, maybe he tries to tuck it back inside. It, it looks at an unnatural position to me. I feel like it could have gone either way. I'm not going to say definitively that it should be because the problem with the angle was we could not see how far away from his body his arm was. You know, if he moves his arm two inches, but it's right next to his side, then maybe that's not relevant. He blocks so across I, I going into the box. His arm's away from the body. Maybe they gave him, cut him a break at the very last minute, pulling his arm away. But look, you put it out there to begin with. So that's a cool yep. rule. Can we do that now? I can walk up there like I'm trying to block a field goal or like I'm trying to play like defense <laughs> in basketball and I can move my arm out towards the ball. But at the very last second, as long as I pull it away slightly, it's not a handball. Absurd. It's a handball to me. It's a penalty immediately. <laughs> now, I don't know if that changes the game um, because I think that would have only had a sitting back more. I don't know. Maybe it would have given us confidence. I really liked our start. It was great. We're on the front foot. But, you know, it's funny. In the fifth minute, I saw immediately to them do kind of that immediate counter right down the middle. and We didn't seem prepared for it. And I just I was shaking my head thinking, oh, my God, there was also some plays in the first half where, I mean, it was a borderline street fight and there were no false fouls called. Um, I thought the Allen yellow was pretty important uh, in the 15th minute. Then he took another very poor foul in the 20th that he kind of a little bit of a hip check. Maybe it was a dive. So what? Because you don't want to keep giving Jared Ward Prowse free kicks. I mean, is there a better free ticker free kicker in the premier league? No, probably no, not. no. So that was, that was a boneheaded mistake really. And, and, you know, I think, I think at that point in time, right about the 20th minute or so, we saw Everton mostly dominate in the first 15 minutes. But as you mentioned, we saw them numerous times already trying to hit on the counter. And, and I yep. had in my notes, Holgate had a couple of interceptions already by like the 12th minute. So the danger signs were there. I think, you know, at that point in time, in my mind, I'm, th I'm thinking, okay, we're, you know, we're possessing the ball. We're moving it pretty well around, you know, naturally the finishing isn't there, but it's controversial. We've got the energy. It's, it's happening, but that's when it starts to kind of flip. Right. And they look dangerous offset pieces too. That's the thing. Even if we didn't really concede off one early Pickford made some fantastic saves. He deserves a lot of credit. He performed very well today. His distribution wasn't great, but his saving was great. He had one save off a corner. That was absolutely fantastic going down to his left. I don't, he might've even been wrongly positioned to be honest, uh, may have been offside too. Uh, we, we aren't playing people on the posts and our set pieces have been for the most part, very effective. We didn't have many of them today. But again, Ward Prowse is really dangerous off that off that. And they have some big bodies in there. So you can't continually concede corners, uh, which we gave up a couple early for sure. And and look, um, even though that's not, you know, it's not it's kind of rare for Southampton because they attack down the middles the whole time. But but look, if we look after the 24th minute and we just look at the numbers possession, even right shots two to two. So you're thinking in the 24th minute, there were some signs that we were crumbling a little bit. 
but no way did you ever think in your craziest notions that it would go downhill the way it did. The only signs I saw was the bad passing and the pass completion percentage was low at that point. And unfortunately really didn't get any better whatsoever, but we were taking care of the ball though. It wasn't like we were giving the way to them maybe on the pass. Look, yeah, Pickford makes a great save off a corner in the 32nd. I thought by the time we got to halftime, I don't know how you thought. I was thinking, let's just get to halftime and regroup because, I mean, they really came on after that 24th minute. I'm assuming you probably felt the same way. No, absolutely. It's not a secret. Everton have been a second half team for a handful of years now, and that's that's a fact. So it was interesting to see that we started, you know, we started hot and really, um, you know, essentially allowed Southampton to work themselves into the match. Um, for the most of the second half, but I mean, excuse me, for the most of the first half, <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, at halftime, we're looking at it. We're, we were, we were constantly starting to give the ball away. Um, Gordon had four bad touches and those weren't even lost balls. He was just giving it right. 67% pass accuracy versus Southampton's 82, nine to three in shots. And then Southampton ended with almost 60% possession at halftime. So the signs were there. Everton needed changes, but Ryan, the change at halftime, which, you know, we we have complained about Frank waiting a while to make some subs. So I know I heard the announcer say, you know, saying that there was going to be a change at the inter- interval for Everton. I'm thinking, wow, maybe we're going to see someone like Gordon come off. But that was not necessarily the case, was it? No, that's not what happened. Instead, we decided to take out our only relatively defensive minded midfielder. And really, he's more of a box to box player, not a six. Um, he's kind of masquerading as one right now because people are out. We decide to bring in arm Andre Gomes uh, to play in a 4-4-2 with Donny Vandebeek. My immediate reaction was, is this guy nuts? Like, why? Under- I understand he's limited with options. I, I get that. I understand that. I feel like Allen Iverson. And I know I should be there. I know. I know. But what are we talking about, man? So I, I just... I don't know what he's thinking here. Maybe he was limited. Alon was hurt or injured. Alon is on a yellow, but Alon never gets red cards, honestly. Knock on wood. He is very smart. He gets his money worth. He gets his yellows. But go back and listen to his history. He almost never gets to the second yellow. Almost never. So I know concerns with him playing that way because it's not like Southampton's going to put that much pressure directly on him. Actually, if anything, it might chill him out and get him to sit a little bit deeper. I, I just can't imagine what he's thinking here. Stephen Williams, I think, uh, <laughs> I think brings up a really good point, though, Alex, which is one that I want to talk about in concert with questioning kind of this decision making in terms of personnel switch. I don't know if you want to have at it. I'd love to hear your take on what he says. Yes. So at Steve M. Williams said, I think we might look back at the end of the season and say, why, oh, why didn't we sign a semi-competent, not even a competent, a semi-competent defensive midfielder? Southampton broke through us for fun second half without leaving second gear. Absolutely factual. I think a lot of fans on Twitter, on social media in general, the talk of the January window ended up being, okay, great, we got some exciting players, but we don't have a DM. We know that we don't want to play, as you mentioned, Ryan, we don't want to play Alon as as a sitting DM. And, And JPG hasn't gotten in the team for barely any minutes at all, and it doesn't seem like he's going to. So that would have been a huge help. And, and we've talked about, you know, we mentioned in one of the matches before how Frank set up with Jorginho and then he had two, you know, kind of box to boxes in front. We've mentioned that if, if we had a sitting six, then we have plenty of players that could pro- play that profile of an eight, you know, Donny Vandebeek, uh, Gomez in a pinch, right? Alon, all of those players. So, yeah, 
Yeah, it right. Is, you can play the I mean, you're not going to get in Conte because he can cover all the ground in the world. But the point is having someone with his industry and athleticism behind and, and he's a smart player, but behind two attacking players makes sense, especially in a match where you may be on the ball a lot. And fine, if that's not going to happen, you know, at least play the possession based guy next to the guy that can sit and control the game a little bit when you don't have that guy. I mean, this combination is Donnie and, and Andre are, are the other guy. So they're missing, you know, so to play them together was nuts. But yes, why did we not sign a semi-competent defensive midfielder? If you knew Bameen wasn't going to play, whether it's fitness, whether you think he's not good enough, which there's no way he's not good enough, in my opinion, because I saw him before, unless he's truly crocked. And I, I see no physical evidence that he is. I mean, he looks like the same big, strong, fast guy that that he was before. So if there's no, I, I just don't understand it, then you have to go get one. And again, I go back and say, so say there's limited funds. Say we're up against it in financial fair play. We brought in a guy making 100K a week. Then don't bring him in. Not to mention, I would actually question the intelligence in why would we bring in anyone or buy anyone in January when we don't have a director of football, we don't have a longer term acquisition and recruitment strategy to pair against a style of play thing. It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, frankly, to bring in Frank in a relegation fight but that's a totally different story he's in here now he's in here you know what i mean so i I just it's hard for me to get over that and i keep bringing it up and people get irritated but should anyone be surprised whatsoever that they cut us apart every bit as much and sure enough in the 52nd minute boom they uh they made it one nil yeah i mean and and in the 52nd minute, that's the worst part, right? Gomez came on in the 45th minute for the second half, the start of the second half. Next thing you know, he's passed to the ball under pressure, which we've seen a bunch of training videos recently of the central midfielders working on receiving the ball under pressure. And what he does is instead of, you know, one time passing it, he tries to take a touch and he gets bullied off. Next thing you know, all they got to do is slide the ball to the right to Armstrong. Well, you know, I don't understand in this point, you know, Gomez lost the ball, you know, probably what 10 yards from the top of the box terrible position so it's kind of hard to say he's not pretty culpable but John Joe Kenny in my opinion probably should have stayed further left with Armstrong he pressured the other player and it made a simple pass to him and and snuck it in the near post um obviously well, he's not a natural you know, Pickford, left back. yeah yeah okay well does he's a defender <laughs> a rule yeah, is true. a rule I, why yeah, don't I leave agree. don't leave someone on your back post <laughs> yeah yeah I mean there's no question about it I I think it's it's hard to fault Pickford overall today. And look, he crushes this low on the ground near post. I mean, he's almost inside the post when he shoots it. Um, it's a pretty high percentage shot. Pickford has a tendency to guess a little bit. And as a result, he maybe makes some spectacular saves. I'm not going to be too, look, I'm the first one that can be critical of Jordan Pickford, but I'm not going to be too harsh on him. It's a good finish. Yeah. Look, Andre Pickford, Pickford was is, man of the match today. I agree. I agree. I mean, look, the way of the new Premier League is it's a borderline street fight every other game. So if you're going to get fouled and hatcheted when you got the ball with someone on your back, it's a risk either way, right? So although Andre normally is pretty good at holding the ball up, he's got a big body. He's got a good touch. He's got decent control. You're rolling the dice, man. We saw Awobi is normally good at it too. We saw him get mugged a couple times today. No fouls where Charleston gets mugged all the time. They don't call anything. So Andre's rolling the dice here and he didn't make a good touch anyway. It's a bad decision. You know, if if it wasn't indicative of his play early and look, he didn't know what he was doing. And at one point, literally, and it might have been right after the goal, he's on the sidelines and Paul Clement has got his fingers up, like showing him the two and how he should be playing with Van de Beek and whatnot. And maybe I'm wrong, but if you need to do that 
after you already did that at half where you got 10 to 15 minutes to walk someone through how you want them to play. And I didn't see any massive tactical changes from how we set up from the get go. So are you not paying attention? Are you, is Andre just the really good looking dense person? I mean, I don't want to be too critical there, but seriously, is he just the beautiful person? That's not real bright. I, I I just don't. And to me, it's more typical that it's just not a, you're not putting him in a position to, to be successful, frankly. And if you wanted to get on the ball and dominate the ball, which that would be the only circumstance in, in which I think those two might be successful. Did we show indications of doing that whatsoever? Because what I saw was hoofball city from the back. No, that that's that's all it is. And then when you replace Alon with Gomez, you you lose even well any semblance of athleticism really that you had. I mean, you know, Donnie can run, but he's not quick and he's not that strong. So no, at that point and Alon's I mean, not kind of screwed. Yeah, and Alon's not and, either, but at least he has some defensive tendencies. Some. Right. And, and, you know, so so moving through the second half, essentially, it's the same old story over and over again. Southampton had the ball. Everton couldn't string more than three passes together. And, and it was tired in the 65th minute. And I was scratching my head on this one. So I, I want to know what you think, Ryan. In the 65th minute, we know that Alex Wobie's coming off, which, first of all, in my opinion, I'm, I'm thinking, why not Gordon first? Because he was he was pretty terrible today. But we find out it's Andros Townsend coming in. So we waited till the 65th minute after the game is going the exact same way it was in the 24th minute, and then we sub on Andros Townsend. Why? I can't figure it out myself. Andros, I think I bypassed three times. Um, he just, he actually passed the ball fairly well, but I mean, he made a couple touches where he's just not good under pressure, and this team puts you under pressure if you want to keep the ball. If anything, Alex Awobi's doing a decent job keeping the ball. He was not passing it to the other team, and when he plays right, he tends to give you a little more stability in possession. Um, was Alex tired? I, I, I don't I mean he, he's certainly a better defensive player. I would think than, than Gordon, no offense to Anthony Gordon. I thought Anthony Gordon was poor. And so I, I don't understand that at all. And even worse, you have a chance to make a change. You don't change formation. I don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense to me. Anthony Gordon, let's, let's be clear has been fantastic in the last month or so. He really has been, but he's young. He's going to be inconsistent. And this was a poor performance. I mean, 59% pass rate was the worst of all the starters. 42 touches, a lot to have in 75 minutes. One key pass, basically off a corner, no shots, no shots on target, of course. Zero for three in crosses. And I again, I just don't get it. I mean, I want to see Anthony Gordon. I think he, if you want him to succeed, a good way to do it is bring him and all that energy off the bench when he's going against tired legs. I mean, that may have been effective today. I just think Frank got this one wrong. And I'm like, geez, what did Alex do wrong? A Wobi? I mean, I don't know. I thought he was okay and he wasn't fantastic. No one was fantastic. But out of all our players in the starters, none of which played great, would you have said Alex Awobi played the worst? No, not at all. I I thought I thought Gordon was gonna come off at half. Like I wish he came off at half and not a lawn, seriously. But it was more the same. And then in the 75th minute, we finally see Deli Ali come in for Anthony Gordon. And that Again, big question mark. But that is when we switch formation. We saw us move into more of a 4-2-3-1, right? And Deli Ali kind of played centrally. But 75th minute on, we didn't have enough time to affect the match. I mean, it was all Southampton moving forward like it was throughout. It's a change that needed to come far earlier. And it was really disappointing to see that, you know, we Deli essentially had no, uh, you know, no chance to affect the match in the last 15 minutes. No, and I, I we didn't look especially dangerous. He had a moment or two that he thought he almost played Dominic Calvert-Lewin through, which was a you see the moments of almost brilliance from Daly. You know what I mean? The things that make him 
or can make him on a good day an elite player. You definitely see that, but it really didn't matter because in the 84th minute of any moment, it's funny because Pickford played so well. I mean, if you look in the second half, I mean, you know, we'll get to that in a second. Well, we'll mention, I mean, Everton didn't have a single shot on goal in the second half. Southampton had six. So Pickford was making some saves. This is one where he'd probably like to have done differently. I would say, I think that's a safe, a safe mention, but, but look, I mean, even from the 75th minute on four to one in shots, but we at least had more control of the ball and we actually had more possession than they did. Once we went to the, to the four, two, three, one at about 51%, which isn't a lot. Um, but we made it a little harder for them, but this was the dagger. And look, of course, long who <laughs> hasn't been off the bench much. I mean, really those two starters, Che Adams and Brohar real pain to deal with. And they've been effective and been playing together now for several weeks at a time. Pickford probably got caught halfway on this one. Probably has to come out a little stronger. Don't you think Alex? Yeah. And, and I think too, I mean, you know, the header at the, at the far post at that point. I mean, we also, the commentators made sure to mention it about 40 times. We had three blue shirts near and somehow Shane Long was the one on the end of it too. So definitely still culpable for the defenders. You know, they could have done better. And obviously, as you said, that's the dagger at that point in time. I mean, there was nothing else moving forward. And, and, you know, second half dribbling stats, for example, if we're talking about the difference, you know, you mentioned we had no shots on goal. We were dribbled past six times in the second half where we only completed one dribble past Southampton. So that shows you that we're not passing the ball. We're not really possessing the ball well, and we're also not carrying the ball well. So what no did threat. we do well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was no threat in the second half, and we had no ideas. We're kind of out of sorts. Townsend, of course, gets bypassed three times, which if they're attacking all the time down the left, why did you think bringing in Andros Townsend is suddenly going to help you from a defensive standpoint? It gives you fresh legs, sure. But I, I don't I don't quite understand that. That didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, six to one in dribbles, one in the second half. I mean, so where was it going to come from? Because you took Gordon and Awobi out. Those are your two dribbling threats, at least. Maybe you think Richarlison is going to have the ball more in that last 75 minutes, which he didn't. So I, I don't know. It just seemed devoid of a plan. And, you know, we were just playing into a brick wall the whole time. But look, I would say the most indicting number out of all this was 71% pass rate. Now, normally I don't make a big deal about pass rates, you know, because that's more the style of play. But if we're not going to play and don't have a true number six and we don't have a stout defensive midfield and we've got Holgate and Keane in the back, we've got to keep the ball more to alleviate some of the pressure off the defenders. So I went back and just looked at all Southampton's matches just number-wise to see who had a lower one, and maybe I missed one. But I had to go back to February of 2021 to have a worse pass rate other than their Burnley match. So that's only that's the second worst pass rate against for an op opposition team since February of 2021 for a whole entire calendar year. That's how inept our passing was. We had a better pass rate under Rafael Benitez, who didn't care about stuff like that, who just wanted to play direct. And and MVP at Phil Addy knocks it out of the park here. He said passing that you wouldn't find at a suburban U10 side in the States. And knowing how much better the U.S. soccer has come, I agree with that. It really was. Alon was poor. Gomes was worse. Uh, it seemed evident by halftime that Southampton was commanding the midfield. Instead of adding a player, we put a less defensive player in with the same formation and got clobbered. Tim Bridal at Tim underscore Bridal says the same thing. Lack of central midfield hurt us again. So look. 
I dropped in this graphic. Who are the three players with the most touches on Southampton? And look at their pass rates and how well they took care of the, the ball. Jer- James ward Pross, Four key passes, granted set pieces, n- over a 91% pass attempt rate with 102 touches. We just let him play, basically. Oriel Romeo, 95 touches, 86.7% passes, three key passes. Kyle Walker-Peters, four shots, two shots on target. Each almost scored. Two key passes, 82 touches, 84.9% pass rate. So look, isn't that the story of the match, Alex? That That is the story. And highlight, but, but see, it, it highlights not only the pass accuracy and the control of the match in general, but it's control, also important to yes. note, right? So you... Yes, control, right? So so between those three players, they had nine key passes. Did you know no more than no player on Everton had more than one key pass to his name? There's the difference. Not only are they controlling the ball, they're keeping hold of the ball. They're also a lot more effective with how they use it. And it showed. They had a better and game actually, plan. Yeah, they did. And they, and they stuck to it and it was effective. They knew what our weaknesses were and they picked us apart. Look, I, I mean, I have some experience with them. Southampton are really well run organization they know what they're doing they're well prepared and ralph's been there for a while and even though they have new ownership they're pretty well organized and know how to attack teams and it was evident and look coleman and holgate were under siege so when you look at player performances sometimes stats need context right we've said that a million times they're interesting coleman was five of six in tackles he had three interceptions led the team in both categories that looks good but then you realize why is your fullback making six tackles and where are is he making them i can guarantee almost all of them were in our own zone which is the problem ultimately i mean it's one thing to be on the front foot fullbacks do tend to have more tackles especially in a modern setup that's not really what happened holgate had two tackles three interceptions missed some tackles six clearances two blocks the problem is if you have six clearances and no one else had anywhere near that it means you're probably under siege and unfortunately um we didn't I mean, I just never saw any evidence of building out of the back. And I get it. You're afraid of their pressure. You don't want to give up the ball, a la Andre Gomes. But that being said, you're sacrificing control just by hoofing it back to them. Ironically, Andres Townsend completed all 16 of his passes when he came on. Um, But that wasn't really, I think, the other problem. I think is if you're going to resort to hoofing the ball up, then that's fine. If Richarlison and Dominic Calvert-Lewin are on it, they're winning everything. Or like I said, tactically, they're winning the ball back down to people. This is the problem with the Rafael Benitez setup when he played that 4-4-1-1. You can't ask the other forward to play behind the center forward target guy because then they can't knock it down to anyone. You can't ask center forward to catch it, win it, and play it back behind you. So the problem with the 4-4-2 is, I mean, did we really expect Alon or Van de Beek or Gordon and Awobi to come inside and to win second balls if we're going to hoof it all day up to Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison? I think that's unrealistic, don't you think? And I think the numbers that Richarlison and Dominic Calvert-Lewin put forward bore that out. Yeah, no, no, it did. And I saw, um, and, and excuse me, because I did not get to sniff this tweet that I found um, earlier, but but someone mentioned essentially Richarlison and Dominic Calvert-Lewin have played numerous matches up top together, but it never really looks like they're able to connect well at all. They don't play off each other that well. And so I think when you mentioned the fact that he didn't really have the options in central midfield to knock the ball around to, obviously Gordon and Iwobi are cutting in, so that's really the only option he had other than Richarlison, but none of them were able to form any sort of fluidity in attack. They weren't able to link at all. And as you said, then the support in central midfield with these guys constantly going back and forth, especially on the counter, it didn't end up working. And it looked disjointed the entire time. 
Yeah, it did. So what position do we think Deli Ali is best suited for? Yeah, that kind of 10 sitting behind the striker. And, and actually, we know Richarlison is a good defensive player too out wide and is willing to put in the work rate. I'm telling you, man, 4-2-3-1 sure seemed to like uh, make a lot more sense with Deli Ali playing back behind Dom if you knew it was going to be one of, those, one of those types of matches. And he gives you size, too. He's a big guy. He's not afla- afraid to press. He'll mix it up with, you know, the the hatchet man, Romeo, who I just, it, it drives me, like, he's, he's a good player, and I would like to have a player that's stout like that in the middle like him, but ultimately, Everything funnels into that guy. It drives me crazy that I feel like the Premier League's now loosey-goosey foul rules basically play into a guy like that. I mean, he can go in and just hatchet people all day, and he did. Um, yeah, look, I mean, Richarlison had three bad touches, three times dispossessed. Uh, Dominic Everloon, four bad touches, one time dispossessed. It just wasn't good. And I, I like Richarlison out wide, inside, so he's a goal threat, but I just think he's stronger on the bowl and could hold it up very well. He becomes a difficult matchup for fullbacks in particular. I think Livermento would have dealt, would have had trouble dealing with his physicality if you get it by Armstrong, which I think we could have. Put it this way, if you put Richarlison in the positions that Anthony Gordon was in today, man, I I, I like our chances of possibly doing some damage. Uh, and look, Kudos to Mo Salasu and Ben Derek. I mean, the bottom line is Mo Salasu is a darn good player, and I was crying for us to go get him, as I've learned through back channels. He was on Brands' list, by the way. He had a low release clause. He was like 10 million pounds, man. He's one of the best center halves in the league, and he's a little sloppy at times, but he wasn't that way in Spain. He was already playing in La Liga. It's like a 21-year-old. He's got size, speed, and so he's going to be a tough matchup for Dom, and Dom did okay at times, but there was no fluidity, Alex, like you said. So look, how many crosses did we have today, Alex? Well, we attempted 15, but oh, we how many did we complete? None. <laughs> none. None. Zero. Yeah. We've so, been waiting uh, for Dominic Calvert Lewin to come back because I thought that the game plan was cross to Dominic Calvert Lewin and pray. That's what that's we've what been all told. The Rafa, that's what all the Rafa Paul just said. How did that go today? Now, look, he did win five aerials. No one on the t- else on the team won more than two. Um, but yeah, I mean, just I mean, just look at it. Aerials won. Like percentage, Salasu, 75%. Broa, 71%. Michael Keane, 167. That's it, though. You know, Romeo, 60. Stuart Armstrong, 150%. What the heck's that? So, yeah, look, I mean, I don't know. And then you just kind of look at the guys that had the most touches and were they effective. I mean, we, we I saw some of the quality from Donny Van de Beek in terms of his touches. We know his first touch is good. His passing is very precise. Um, wasn't as precise as usual today. But what can you really expect from the guy? I still want to see him playing farther up the pitch because I think he can create. and I think we need that. Um, I don't know if it's going to happen, at least until Decore comes back. And then if it does, I don't know how that setup's going to go. I don't know how you get him and Deli Ali in, in the same same lineup in the right way, um, unless you're going to ask Decore to play six and really cover a lot of ground, which he can do. I just don't know if you want to do that. I don't know. He was okay today, Alex, but we didn't see the same magic as we saw from him uh, last last match. No, no, no. I mean, look, 68 touches, most on the team, 52 passes, same thing, most on the team, 79% pass accuracy. So he was better than the majority of the team. And that's important because at that point in time, you know, but he was zero for two in crosses, no long balls, even attempted one tackle, one interception. So it wasn't a terrible performance at all. He was probably... He, you could probably say he was one of the more effective outfield players, and and that's saying something because you know that that is more so just a attempt to take care of the ball and move it. Yeah, the problem is when you've statistics. When you, 
Yes, but when you've got those two guys in the back, I mean, you're not really going to be able to pressure actively. So I think it probably contributed um, the setup to Ward Prowse and Romeo getting on the ball as much as they did. I mean, let's be honest. Um, so he was fine, but look, I mean, he's not a great defensive player. He gets out of sorts, and the shape was a little bit off, but at least he was trying to get back in shape at times, even if his natural inclination was going forward. Andre Gomes was just completely lost. Um, certainly that sub didn't work. But look, there uh, to pile on to the miserable performance in general, um, some other results across the Premier League didn't really go our way, did they? No, they didn't. So Burnley and Watford both win, and Newcastle got a point. So essentially Everton, although we do have you know a game in hand or two on, on uh, some of those clubs, we are only sitting at four points above the relegation match. I mean, above the relegation zone at this point in time, you know, we thought we were really hoping we start climbing, especially after the leads, you know, you put a couple of wins together and it's a far different picture, but today pretty much all results went against us. And then you look at who Everton have next and that is man city. That should go well. Uh, yeah, I, look, if you look at the table, there's some, I'm going to try and give some positives, positives here. So being objective, Newcastle are even with us in points. We got a game at hand. They look really good, though. I mean, they've won three out of five. Their additions, even though Trippier's out, make them a lot more stout. And and I think they'll probably be fine now. I'd be surprised if they weren't. Watford, I'm still not convinced by. That was a big win for them. They had been a disaster leading into it. We'll call that a fluke. We got a game at hand on them, but who knows if they're going to climb out. Burnley are only at 22, 22 games. They have a game at hand on us. Sam Dyche seems to make the great escape every year. The only positive I think we have on is is Brantford has played 26 matches. Is that really right? And they're at 24 points, only two better than us. They've lost four out of their last five. We handled them, I thought, pretty easily. They don't look good. And look, I mean, they're they're a championship side coming up. You knew they were going to struggle. They all do to some extent. And Leeds does not look good. They have some key injuries. They've lost two out of three. And they're only a point better than us with the same amount of matches. So there is some hope, but boy, that just looks way tighter than I'm used to seeing. It makes, I mean, it makes you nervous, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, it just piles on the misery after a loss on match day, right? Because nobody likes a loss. We've seen far too many this season. Yeah. And I think that just kind of adds the anxiety of it. But look, before we wrap, we've got a couple more uh, listener comments on the match itself. We had Portland Toffee say, same players as last week. The manager shows trust and that's the repayment. It's on the players, essentially. Do you agree with that, Ryan? No, I don't. Uh, I, I, it doesn't. I mean, the same players aren't going to magically perform the same way against different setups. So no, no, I don't believe that at all. And look, yes, but it's it's still fair to say like they have culpability in the performance. Like the execution was not sure. good. Some of them were poor. Okay, but some of it is also the setup. I, I, the point I'm trying to make is that. It's not about just showing trust, you know, I mean, Portland Toffee has a decent point here. I mean, it's not it's but but look, he's saying, look, here are the variables that are fixed. Same guys, right? How can we perform so differently? But you can't take it away from Southampton. You're not playing the same thing. You're not playing a wall every week. So look, some of the players played poorly. I don't know if it was commitment or spirit, Alex. We haven't even mentioned spirit yet on this. Normally you hit that first five minutes, man. There it is. Um but I just, for me, I mean, you didn't do him any favors with the setup either. Uh, don't think four four two is the right way to go. And I think Frank got it wrong. But look, I mean, I can't argue. I mean, Anthony Gordon was in a lot of dangerous places today. Was not effective. Alex Awobi got himself into a couple dangerous areas. He he had a couple pretty good crosses today, but they were just not there. 
Dominic Calvert-Lewin, I thought, looked lost, out of sync, a step slow. Um, Richarlison didn't maybe quite have his usual quality. The effort was there. There were a couple times, too, we played a ball in that I was like, Dom's Dom should bury that or at least get to it. He wasn't even getting two balls. So when you've got some lack of quality in a couple instances, and it takes some time to build fluidity and attack, you're going to struggle to score goals. And we saw that today, but I, I really think the back and the lack of control we had was probably the most disappointing part about it. Maybe it was even more disappointing knowing that we started off really well and just, just kind of fell apart. And I think that's what Colton nails right here. Yeah, pretty much along the same sen- uh, sentiment, Colton Gesser at the real Sea Wagon. Players didn't show up. They played great the first 15 minutes, and it went down the tubes that fast. No heart in the second half at all. They will need to have a big march, or they are going down. And I think that's that's pretty fair to say if we're talking about the next month or so. Um, inaccurate in terms of the timeline of the match, too. I mean, definitely. it was As we mentioned, it was interesting to see that we had a really hot start, and it was great, but it really did not you know, tend to lend itself well to the rest of the match. And then lastly, we had Steve Jones at SK Jones 505 say, same display as Newcastle, so it can't be called an off day. Maybe not the same exact display, but definitely a diabolical display. And nonetheless, I think it really just encapsulates and it it serves as a reminder to us as Everton fans that we still have a very long uphill battle to fight in terms of getting this team on paper and in performance to be consistent especially with the injuries that we have. I mean, certainly Frank has gotten his tail kicked worse uh, than any other time we've really had this year in both those matches against Newcastle, though. I still maintain that was a decision you made to start a strong lineup against Brentford and you had two first half injuries. And that's a lot of the the contributing factors to that one. I mean, it's and look, it's not like we didn't have the ball against Newcastle. We had it a lot. I mean, 62 percent of it. We just did nothing with it. And we looked exhausted. And, you know, again, the first half injuries hurt us. And he was playing guys out of position because he wasn't sure what the heck to do with them. But today was just, I mean, just running into a brick wall, Alex. And and maybe it's personnel limitations, but I just, he's going to have to change things up. And I think going into that match with 4-4-2, especially considering your personnel, um, again, he's lacking numbers in midfield now. So maybe that's the thought process behind playing two. But I just... I don't see any way in the world that that setup made sense and he should know better having played against him several times. That's my take. Um, but nothing. I mean, see what Steve's saying is not crazy or anything. Um, I just think there are different factors and every game is slightly different. Um, but yeah, I mean, my summary going forward is that I don't know what we do against man city. I think that's going to be fascinating, but Frank's got to come up with an identity for this team and stick with it. Cause you didn't see anything remotely close to what we saw against Brentford. And it wasn't just due to quality. It was due to lack of organization and Southampton. So predictable. He should know better. I don't know. That's my summary take Alex. I'm curious as to how you would wrap this sucker up. Yeah. I mean, I think really, you know, and maybe I'm a little too optimistic or I'm trying to be a realist, but I would just say that the performance, um, and mostly, I guess, the decision. I'm referring to the de- decision-making of Lampard. Um, you know, it comes with the context that we we discussed it upon the hire. The guy's only had a couple of years' managerial experience. He's young. He's obviously, hopefully, being hired with, you know, at least some sort of mid-term approach to his tenure. You know, I that's the first thing that came to my mind when I heard the commentators mentioning how Ralph Hudson-Hoodle has been there since 2018. We've had four managers since. So all of that to say that, it is fair that Frank is going to make mistakes. It's part of learning for anyone in any job. It wasn't great. It, I think a lot of fans saw that with the performance and, and how we executed it. But I will just say, it, you know, 
it is fair to expect that he's going to make mistakes in his tactical setup. All we can do is hope that we don't see such a big mistake too many times in the future. Well, look, you hired a guy based on a style of play. You know, you hire a manager like you can't hire a manager and expect him to play differently. I, I don't think that's fair to the manager. So, look, you brought him in. You're asking him to play a particular way. Now, my problem is we didn't play that way today and got beat. Like if we play with the high pressure, attempt to have high possession to keep the ball and we just get beat. That's fine because that can happen. Right. You know, they can hit us off the counter or whatnot. That's not what happened today. And I think that's what's disappointing for me. Now, don't get me wrong. I said on the pod, I'll say it again. I would never have hired this guy. I think it's a risky proposition to play the way he plays. Uh, I don't think it's typical of a team that just needs to be more organized defensively. I've seen no evidence whatsoever that he necessarily can organize a defense. However, he doesn't have great personnel to do it. One thing that would help is to keep the ball. We didn't do that today. And I think ultimately that's my disappointment that we didn't play the way I was expecting us to play and lost that way. I would have much rather lost attempting to play in a certain way because I think you can build upon that. That's what I'm most disappointed with. I think that's a good place to wrap. Um, So thank you all for joining us. We always appreciate you listening. And obviously we will be coming to you after the Man City match with hopefully somehow a more positive match reaction. But until next time, up the toffees.